Well, good morning, church. Uh, as Jake said, my name is Ricky. If you're new here, I'd love to get a chance to meet you. Um, and I want to invite you to open up your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm letting you know that up front because it may take you a minute to find it since this is not a book typically we put on coffee cups or special pastel paintings we hang in our homes. You may have never even read the book of Ecclesiastes, so you may need to consult the table of contents. It is in the front of your Bible, and that's okay. Uh, as you turn there, a couple notes. One, I just want to encourage you, please do not miss out on the opportunity to spend time with Billy Rays and his wife, Jan, as they come to serve us with this marriage weekend uh, later on this month. I have never, I've known Billy Rays for many years, probably for 15 years or more, and I have never regretted spending time with Billy Rays. Um, he is uniquely gifted. I think God's given him a unique gifting to speak into, to speak life and encouragement into married couples. I really do think sometimes God gives people just gifts to be able to encourage in specific areas, and I do think Billy and Jan have a particular gifting. So if you're feeling good in your marriage, it'll strengthen you. If you're feeling weak in your marriage, this will speak life to you. If you're thinking, man, I don't even want to be married, this is for you. And so please join us. Uh, register today. Save yourself uh, 10 bucks and, and go buy a Starbucks on the way. It'll be great. Um, now, uh, the reason I've had you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes is that on my study leave last month, one of the things I did was read the book of Ecclesiastes every few days. And I, I have to admit, I still don't fully understand everything about this book, but I, I, what I do understand has proven to be, I think, the most impactful section of God's word in my personal daily life in the last number of years. So as a pastor, I read a lot of the Bible, but this book has just gone to work at me over the last couple of months, and it has really changed my daily life for the better. And that may be surprising, because if you think of the books of the Bible like people, so sometimes I think of the books of the Bible like people, I don't know if anybody else does that. If you show up at a party and all the books of the Bible are there, and Romans is there in the corner, Romans has a suit on. You know, Roman has, Romans has his tie buttoned. He's in a double Windsor, and he shakes your hand, good evening. You know, he's very stately. Uh, the book of Acts is the life of the party. He's like, bam, wow, yeah, he's telling stories. He's got people gathered around. You want to hang out with the book of Acts. Psalms is that guy in the corner. He's either, like, rejoicing playing his guitar, or he's weeping playing his guitar. It's one or the other. Never, no middle-of-the-road emotion with Psalms. And in the party, probably somewhere tucked into the back corner, is Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is the guy dressed in all black. And you're like, what's going on with that guy in the corner? You know, and he's just looking around and thinking. And you go up to him and say, hey man, Ecclesiastes, how you doing, man? He goes, we're all gonna die. <laughs> Have you thought about that lately? Everyone you know is gonna die. You too will be dead. Dust from dust you've come to dust you will. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go see what Acts is doing, but you, you have fun, Ecclesiastes, right? That's how we often treat the book of Ecclesiastes. If you get there in your Bible reading plan, you're like, okay, this is weird. Let's move on. But let's remember, every single part of God's word is breathed out by God and inspired by him. So in Ecclesiastes, we're going to be reading the first section to give you a flavor of the book, and then we're going to do a flyover this week and next week of the book as something of a trailer to commend the study of this book to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 
And it's okay. Allow the weirdness and shock of the book to land on you a little bit. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, this is God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. This is God's word. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have today. Amen. Well, often as people and even as Christians, we don't say the quiet parts of life out loud. What we often don't say out loud is this, that life is profoundly frustrating. That life often seems pointless So much of life is wearying and frustrating, and we don't want to talk about that. Listen, I've known people who live really wisely and manage their money, and they reconcile all their bank accounts at the end of the month, and they're so careful with what they earn, and yet their entire savings is wiped out by a pile of unexpected medical bills, leaving them them in debt for years. I've known business owners who worked really, really hard over a long time at their companies and then sold their companies only for the company after them soon to crash and burn. Or if the company is successful, well, then nobody remembers the guy who started it. Seems like vanity. I know people who experience the most amazing things, who chase vacations or exotic locales or competitions or, or extreme races uh, or, or the, 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 the finest food or the best meal. And they, they chase these things and yet they may experience it in a moment and then it's gone and they're on to the next, hoping that next one, that next meal will fully satisfy them. That next vacation will fully satisfy. That next possession will make them feel safe and secure and happy and it goes and it goes and it goes and another round of vacations, another round of purchases, another round of meals and yet it does not ultimately satisfy. I've seen over and over that you can't freeze life. No matter how good it is, you can't stop it right there. It just keeps going. It flows and flows and on it goes. And everyone you love will eventually pass away and your body will eventually break down and you will too. 
I remember vividly experiencing some of this in some of the truth of Ecclesiastes where in the pandemic, we, we'd had an opportunity before the pandemic to go to, uh, to try to take the kids to Disneyland. And I, one of the kids did not go because it was school stuff. And I just thought, oh man, I should have, you know, the pandemic hit and he began to have health issues. And so I thought, man, I really wish I could have taken him. So I, we kind of resolved in the pandemic, if we ever have the opportunity on the other side of the pandemic, we're going to take uh, the, the family to Disney World or Disneyland as kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. We'll do that, you know, the, the, I guess the American pilgrimage that everyone has to do eventually if you can. And, and so we looked forward to it for a year during the pandemic. We thought, oh, this would be so fun to take the kids and do this and this and this. And we get there and we arrive and, and we, we finally take the kids, uh, you know, some combination of points and savings and all that stuff. You get the kids. We're standing in front of this giant ball there at Disney World and the big entrance and you go there. And I start to realize my, my back isn't feeling great. So we go and we walk and we walk and my back is feeling worse and worse. And finally it just gives out. I can barely walk. They almost have to rent me a scooter to get me out. And I spend our great day at Disneyland, laid up in the hotel room with a back problem. And this would be funny if not for the fact that my last trip to Disneyland, I had appendicitis and again, entered the park, excited, magical day, and then horrific stomach pain back in the hotel room, right? This seems to be a pattern with me. And so, uh, don't go to Disney World with me, I think is the, the moral of the story. But often it is extremely frustrating that you plan and you hope and you, you set your hope on something and yet when you finally arrive, it vanishes. It's ephemeral. It's gone. I already paid my admission. Now I can't go. You know, this is life. And that is already, I think, helpful on one level because we as Christians can be afraid to acknowledge the frustrations of life lest we appear ungodly. We can feel as Christians like everything has to be positive and encouraging all the time. How are you doing, brother? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm blessed. I'm the Lord. Is, you know, we're going to respond in sort of a Caleb personality voice. Like, how are you doing? Oh, everything's positive and encouraging. I wonder if anything goes wrong in the lives of those people. I, I mean, I wonder if there's ever a day their car breaks down and their coffee spills and that they have to jump on the air and go, good morning. Having a great day here. Like, that's, that, that is life. That is life. And what's encouraging is that is in the Bible. And so it's okay for us to grapple with this and admit this. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to answer two questions that I think Ecclesiastes is uniquely suited to answer. The first question today is why is life so frustrating? And the second question next week is how do I enjoy my frustrating life? which is what Ecclesiastes tells us to do. The first question is, why is life so frustrating? Well, to get that answer, we have to understand the main repeated word throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes is this word, vanity. Or if you have another version of the Bible, it might say life is meaningless. That is a, the reason that the, there's so many different translations of that word is it's a notoriously difficult word to translate because the word has a range of meanings, like English words, this word in particular has a range of meanings, and the writer of Ecclesiastes uses it to create plays on words, making it almost even more confusing. He's poetic with it. He uses it as a metaphor in different ways. And so the best way to define this word, life is vanity, is by letting the book define the word for us. If you're like, I don't understand that word, it's okay. Ecclesiastes will help you understand it. He'll tell you what he means by it. So we're going to use this book to answer the question, what does he mean? And in that, we will find the, the answer to the question of why life is so frustrating. 
So first, life is frustrating because it is a vapor. Now the word here, vanity, is the Hebrew word hevel. Literally, hevel means smoke or vapor. So imagine, you know, a, a mist, and then, or I think of in El Paso, sometimes we'll get in, in certain seasons a little bit of fog around in the morning, and then as soon as the, the, the sun comes up, it just slices through and all that fog is cleared away. That is what he's talking about. Or the last wisp of a, of a campfire kind of floating up into the air. That's, that's what he's saying. Life is hevel. Life is smoke. Life is vapor. Life is ephemeral. Now, the author of the book is mysterious. It, could, it is sometimes attributed to Solomon. We don't know for sure, but we do know two things about him. We know that he's a teacher of wisdom. He collects wisdom. He observes carefully. And he's either a king of Israel or he's in the court of the king sort of compiling this on behalf of the king. So he has let's just say, a vantage point to observe life better than most. He, he's kind of up on a tower looking down on life, observing and surveying life, and here is what he observes. Verse four, a generation comes, a generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises, the wind blows, the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, they just keep flowing. What, what, what is he talking about here? All these metaphors piling up? He's talking about mortality. Generations are like the sun rising and the sun setting. To put it maybe more specifically, everything is bell bottoms and funk music until it's leather jackets and big hair, until it's baggy jeans and gold chains, until it's skinny jeans and converse, until it goes back to bell bottoms and I guess funk music and more leather jackets and big hair. And then again, we apparently are wearing baggy jeans with gold chains until we will inevitably again start wearing skinny jeans and converse. And so it goes. That is life. Everything that seems so important and so earth-changing just ends up passing away. Fashions are a vapor. Generations are a vapor. This holds true even up to the highest vantage point, to this king or ruler, right? His administration and all the people fawning to please this king will pass away, and he knows that inevitably people will struggle to remember his name or the name of the current ruler, just like we struggle to remember the name of the sixth U.S. president or the 11th U.S. president, I don't know. You're probably thinking right now, do I know that? Doesn't matter, right? It doesn't, it just goes and goes and we will elect another president that we will then forget. That's what is inevitable. In chapter nine, the book most poignantly slams this home with the helpful section. Look at chapter nine briefly in your Bible. Look at the helpful section hanging over chapter nine in your Bible. The encouraging phrase, death comes to all. Doesn't that sound like a part of your Bible you just love to read in your quiet time? Oh, I just got my little cup of coffee. I got my, you know, the birds are tweeting. Let's jump into death comes to all. No. You're like, I'm going to go back to the Psalms again. Why is this in the Bible? Well, look at verse nine, chapter nine, verse six. It says, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever. They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So, Here's why life is frustrating. Much of our frustration with life is with our mortality. And if Ecclesiastes will in just a minute show us that the way to peace and life in, in, in this 
passing mortality is to see it and acknowledge it and live within it and rejoice. Second, you're wondering, how do I do that? Hang on. Second, second reason life is frustrating is because it is a mirage. One help with reading the book of Ecclesiastes is recognizing that it's divided into two main types of writing. First is the sections of observation. So imagine this, like the the writer of Ecclesiastes has his pen out, he's got his binoculars out, he's observing, he's writing down, he's cataloging, this is what I see. And this is what I see over here, and this is what I see over here. And then sometimes he will turn from observation to you as the reader and then instruct you with how to think. And that's a huge help when you read Ecclesiastes because sometimes you're like, what am I supposed to do with all of this? Well, it's observation. He's saying, this is what I see. And then at certain points he turns and says, now here's what to think about that. So we see that uh, he, he concludes. And one of the things he does in this book is he undertakes a quest to find what is not vain. He says, I'm going to start a quest to find something not meaningless, not ephemeral, not a vapor. But as we kind of watch him through his quest, he can't find anything in life that's not vain. He either pursues wholeheartedly or he observes others uh, and he tries to find something that gives life lasting meaning that is not frustrating. But in this quest, he is ultimately frustrated. One great example of this is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Flip back to that, if you would, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to apply a pleasure test to life. Behold, this was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with mine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And throughout the book, you see that he indulges in everything. He indulges in the finest of wines and in every material. There's implied sexual pleasures and conquests. He, he takes every vacation to every place. He experiences every high that life has to offer and yet it seems vain. Verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So you see him now, he, he takes another test. Maybe it's not pleasure. Maybe it's accomplishment. Maybe it's doing a great work. Maybe it's, it's building something amazing and powerful and awe-inspiring. That that is where I'll find something that's not vain. But you will see, no, it's vanity. All is vanity. So he undertakes a third test in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So he goes to the, to the possession test. He, take, he gets every luxury, every designer set of clothes, 
every accessory for his media room, every fabulous car you've ever wanted, every tech gadget nobody else has, every kitchen luxury with the finest of knives and Le Creuset. And it's just, it's all piled up in his giant mansion. And look at his conclusion in verse 11. After all of this, the pleasure test, the accomplishment test, the the possession test, verse 11, then I considered all my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, here's his conclusion, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now he's saying that what everyone pursues in life, what everyone is aimed at, what everyone is grasping and scraping and clawing their way to is, if you could say it this way, a mirage. Have you ever driven out through the desert in the, when it's really hot outside and seen a mirage of a pool of what looks like a pool of water in the distance where the heat kind of wobbles in the desert distance and you start to think, is that a... Is that a lake? I remember I would go on these long drives with my granddad. He loved to drive the long New Mexican highways that lead to nowhere in his F-150 just to drive, listening to Garth Brooks and drinking Coke and eating peanuts. And I just loved it. And so we'd go out. And as a kid, I remember driving around in the F-150 with him. And I would see in the distance, look, granddad, is that, is that a lake? My granddad would just laugh. No, son, that's not a lake. What is is it, granddad? It's dirt. But but it looks like a lake. Son, I'm telling you, that's dirt. Can we drive there? Okay. As we drive over, and it'd be like, but I thought there was a lake here. It's over there. Son, that's dirt, right? That's like, and so there was a couple times he indulged me and showed me. No, no, no. If you drive toward the mirage, the mirage just keeps moving forward. It's not there. All you're going to find is more dirt. And, and that is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. There is no pleasure in life that satisfies. No drug, no porn, no trip of a lifetime, no accomplishment, no building of a company, no receiving of a degree, no plaque on the wall, no possession, no dream house, no car, no dream phone. All of it, none of it lasts. It doesn't fully fulfill you. The accomplishments turn to dust. The possession gets ignored. And look, this, friends, this is where Ecclesiastes serves us so well. It's a warning. It's a necessary warning. And I would say it is an urgent warning for those of us who live in 21st century America. You will be tempted to give your life to something, to chase some mirage. So before you do, listen to the writer of Ecclesiastes as he says, see that out there? That is dirt. There is nothing there. I've gone further than you can. I've had more than you ever will. And I am telling you, there's nothing out there. But it's when we recognize that, that we can live a life of peace and joy. And in just a minute, he's going to tell us how. Third reason then, life is frustrating. Life is frustrating because it is a paradox, uh, there's one last shade of meaning to that word hevel that is translated vanity or, or dust or vapor, meaningless. And he uses this word hevel to illustrate the quality of being unable to grasp or hold truth 
the truth about life in your hands and reconcile how life works. Vapor, I mean, when he says life is a vapor, sometimes he means life is a paradox because it seems real, but as soon as you try to grasp it, it dissolves. How, how is that possible? Well, look at Ecclesiastes chapter two, for example. 2.14 says this, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And so you think, yeah, that's what Proverbs says. You want to be wise, not a fool. But then he says this, and yet I perceive, perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Meaning, everybody's going to get sick, everybody's going to die. Right? You can be wise, you can be stupid, you're still going to die. That's what he says. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool what ha will happen to me also? Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. You know who the wisest man who ever lived was? The wisest man in, in the year of our Lord, 1907. You know who that was? I have no idea. And neither do you, right? You know who the stupidest person in 1907 was? I don't know either. Nobody knows. They're dead. Do their grandchildren even remember their names? Maybe. Other than that, nobody. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. Or similarly, in chapter 9, 11, he says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Look, it, it doesn't matter sometimes in battle. Sometimes, uh, like, it, it, I think in, I was reading this week that in Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon had a severe health issue that apart from that horrible, painful health issue, he would have probably won the battle. But he couldn't because he's human and he got hurt and he got sick and then he died. Right? That's what, sometimes the battle is not to the strong. Sometimes... In a race, anybody who's run track or swum in high school knows, well, you get a cold the day before the big meet, you don't swim well, or you just slip on the starting block and you're done, right? This is what Ecclesiastes is saying. Sometimes life does not work the way it should work. Now, side note, doesn't mean throw out the book of Proverbs. It's like, well, I've been reading Proverbs, whatever, not going to try to be wise anymore. No, wisdom, he'll say later, is still good to pursue. Live a wise life and Proverbs will help you do that and life will go better. But here's the warning Ecclesiastes brings to us. Don't assume that if you just do all the wise stuff in life, it equals everything you've ever wanted. Ecclesiastes is warning us, wisdom does not mean that you will avoid hardship or frustration or difficulty. People will forget you. You will be frustrated and you will still get old and die. I was reading an interview uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who uh, is getting old. And he was expressing frustration that he, that he knows there is a day coming and it's going to be sooner than he thinks that he can't lift anymore. And lifting is his favorite thing in life. And he was Mr. Universe. He was the biggest action star of America. But you know what's happening to him now? He's just getting old. And his greatest joy in life is his small donkey that lives with him. And that's real. 
Life is a paradox. Sometimes the battle doesn't go to the swift, doesn't go to the strong. And that's okay to acknowledge because sometimes we want to pretend that doesn't happen. Sometimes as Christians, we want to pretend like, oh, no, 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 no. Nothing bad ever happens to good people. Sometimes faith will be shaken when they try to live wisely and follow God. And then they still experience hardship and difficulty and injustice. The Bible acknowledges that life will be a paradox. And we've got to be real about that. We have to be willing to see it. So we've just seen that life is frustrating because it's a vapor. And we feel our mortality. We've seen that life is frustrating because it's often a mirage and the things we hope last don't last. And we've seen that life is frustrating because it is full of paradoxes that we in our human minds cannot always fully resolve. So what do we do with that? Well, Ecclesiastes gives us a reminder and an encouragement. The reminder is this. We live under the sun. Now, the phrase, under the sun, if you go through this week and highlight it, it occurs throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of the great themes of the book, and it brings with it two important reminders. First, under the sun, it reminds us that sin has wrecked the world. Ecclesiastes 7.20 points out that none are truly righteous, that even the people that seem righteous, they're not fully righteous. And that's what we've seen through the whole Old Testament. Genesis 3 reminds us that the way that God created the world to work in Genesis 1 and 2 is not the way the world works now because of the entrance of sin into the world. Romans 8 summarizes the situation as the world being subject to futility and groaning in the pains of childbirth, meaning that everything under the sun is corrupted and broken. Death has entered the world, injustice happened, and by the way, remember, none are righteous, so we contribute to that brokenness in our own ways. When you look at it and you think this isn't the way things are supposed to work, Genesis 1 and 2 say yes. Very much, much of the way the world works, much of the frustration, much, death itself entering the world, much of this is due to the fact that sin has entered the world. But second, under the sun has another meaning. And the other way that the writer of Ecclesiastes uses this phrase is, by reminding us that we are under the sun, but God is over the sun. Now, there are three, in the ancient kind of world, they thought of the world in three planes, okay, if I could say it that way. Um, not airplanes, but like, like plateaus. Imagine a big mesa. And so there's the human, mortal one. There's the underworld, you know, Hades or Sheol or whatever. And then there's the the the, the over the sun where the gods of you know, Greece or whatever live. And so often ancient people thought of the world in those three kind of planes. And so much of Ecclesiastes is about this, this mortal plane where we live. And it uses that phrase over and over, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. But it reminds us again and again as well that there is one who is over the sun. That God is God and we are not. That our limitations are not God's limitations. What we cannot figure out doesn't mean God can't figure out. What we don't understand doesn't mean God doesn't understand. So, that's the reminder. Here's the encouragement then. Fear the Lord and rejoice. If you are willing to hear the message of Ecclesiastes, you can turn from desperation and frustration to peace and joy. Look at Ecclesiastes 3 verse 10 with me. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So here's the paradox and its resolution. God puts a desire to know eternal things, to know why this happens or that happens into man's heart. But man will never understand fully the answer to that question. He will never understand because Only God understands what has been done from beginning to end. Why? Because God is God and we are not. He is eternal. We are temporal. We don't understand how to resolve the paradox, but God does. Everything on earth is a mirage, but God sees through it all to what matters eternally. This is the truth of Ecclesiastes that we must embrace if we are to rejoice. And the truth is this. We are not God. Only God is God. He's the creator. We're the creature. And the sooner that we accept that God is the sovereign one and not us, we will be at peace. And not just be at peace, but actually rejoice. The writer says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Meaning this, that that what God is about in the world, what God does in the world, what he accomplishes in the world, that does endure. That is not a mirage. That is eternal. And so, for us as humans, when we acknowledge all we do is dust and air, but what the Lord does is eternal, it it puts us in the right posture to say, okay, then I fear you and rejoice and gladly submit to what you call me to do. It says, God has done it so that people fear before him. Some of life is designed the way it is so that God can help us as human beings ungrasp our hands, open them, drop what we have, and fear the Lord. But until that happens, we will always be grasping and straining to outlive the next person, right? To live forever, to to find something that will fully satisfy, to resolve the paradoxes with our great learning and wisdom. And we've got to let that go if we're to receive the truth and joy of God being eternal. God sees through it all. God works out the paradoxes. He is our God. And when we get that truth, we're free to live with joy. Think about it this way. Um, this last couple of weeks, we, we finally got, we're like, okay, we, we'd set a goal at the beginning of the summer. We're going to teach the boys to ride, our older two boys, eight and 10, to ride real two-wheel bikes. Uh, they don't want to do this, but we, our parents, want them to do this, and so they're going to do this. And so they, we, we, we did this thing where we took the, I saw online, you could, you could take the, 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 there's different methods. You don't have to get into it. I'm about to explain to you how to teach a kid to ride a bike. You've already taught your kids to ride bikes. Don't listen to me. I have not yet done it. So shutting up now. The, the thing that I experienced though was 
with the older kids, uh, sometimes I'd be kind of guiding them and helping them turn around so they could kind of take another run at learning to ride their bike. And I'd have my hand on the handlebar so I could steer it. And they would be fighting me with the handlebar, right? They'd be thinking, oh, you, dad doesn't know what he's doing. And, and they'd be, they kind of, they'd have their hand on the handlebar and I would kind of say, all right, let me turn you around. And they'd be like, Arr. and I'd be like, man, you're fighting me with the hand. I know how to ride a bike. You don't know how to ride a bike. Let me help you turn around. And they're like, right? And it's really hard to turn a bike when somebody's fighting you, right? And, so, and, and eventually I'm just like, okay, guys, you got to let me steer the bike and help set you up. And that way you could take another run at this. But their brother is four and he got a tricycle for his birthday. It's adorable. He rides it around the kitchen table over and over. And there'll be sometimes though, he's, learned, he's been learning to steer. And so I'll take his handlebar and I'll steer it. And he, as a four-year-old, gets a truth that his brothers don't. He is happy for me to steer the bike for him. He would like for me to always steer the bike, to run alongside him and steer the bike. And here, I think, is the irony of our human existence. So often, we are the older kid grasping the handlebars, fighting God for control of the universe. When Ecclesiastes said, you will be much happier when you rejoice that God's hands are on the handlebars. That's Ecclesiastes. God has designed some of life that you will be frustrated, <laughs> that you will be like, Argh! so that you will see the way you want to steer the bike is not the right way to go. In fact, fearing the Lord, and, and that phrase, fearing the Lord, really means reverent awe. It means, it means bowing the knee to the Lord and saying, you're God and I'm not. Right? That posture is the path to peace, joy, and happiness. Look, at the very end of the book, I'm going to spoil the ending. At the very end of the book, the, the writer concludes and gives you the point of the whole book. At Ecclesiastes verse I mean, chapter 12 says this. Verse 13, chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Meaning, Ecclesiastes arrives in the end at this key, which is this. Out of everything in Ecclesiastes, he wants you to understand this. Fear God and follow him. And when you realize I'm immortal, not immortal, amortal, I chase mirages that are bad for me, and I don't understand how to resolve the paradoxes. I don't understand why bad things sometimes happen to good people. I can't work all this out in my mind. That when you arrive at that place, you're perfectly primed to then come and say, you know what? I'm not God. He's God. I'll fear the Lord and do what he says. That is the path to joy and peace. Uh, there's a great book I'm going to recommend. We'll put up on the blog uh, on the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it's written by a mom and daughter. And they write the following. They say, knowing that God sends our affliction changes everything. Notice they, they use that phrase, sends, because it, often in Ecclesiastes it says, God has given this unhappy business to the children of man. You're like, why would God give me unhappy business? Now, here's why. 
Knowing that God sends our affliction changes everything. Rather than bitterly begrudging our trouble, we can humbly accept it. That's because we know the sender. He is good and does good. He promises never to leave us nor forsake us. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to resist. He pledges to help us and to comfort us in all our troubles. And he causes all our unhappy business to work together for our good. Meaning this, everything under the sun is designed and governed by the God over the sun. And we know that God over the sun from the rest of the Bible, we know this God. We know he is good. Now, those who read Ecclesiastes originally could look back to the Exodus and see God's salvation from Egypt and say, okay, that's the one who's in charge. I'm not. He's eternal. I'm not. Let me trust him. But brothers and sisters, we have such a better vantage point than even those in the Old Testament. Nothing displays the reality that God is sovereign and we are not, and that that is a good thing more than the cross of Jesus Christ, more than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because what human being could have designed the incarnation of Christ? Who could bring God and man together in the person of Jesus? None of us. What human being could have planned the cross? Where humanity's sin is taken by God the Son and born that we might be freed. Which one of us would have come up with that? None of us. Which one of us could have accomplished it? None of us. What human being could have worked out the future and hope we have in Christ for an, an eternal life that is beyond the Son? That all of this vain life under the Son one day will pass away and it will be renewed and above the Son, beyond the Son, we will live a new eternal life with Jesus Christ. Which one of us could have done that? Which one of us could have planned it? Which one of us could have accomplished it? None of us, brothers and sisters. But God has done it. He is doing it. He will do it. Therefore, we read Ecclesiastes in light of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Even unhappy things, even frustrating things. That hand that sometimes gives us things we don't understand, is also the one that gave us the cross, that gave us Jesus, that gave us eternal life. And so when we come to those paradoxes, those moments where we go, listen, I can come up to the edge, but I can't go any further. I don't know. I don't know how to resolve this. We say we fear the Lord. We re rejoice in the Lord. We let him be God and acknowledge that we are not. So in conclusion, uh, there's three ways you can respond to the book of Ecclesiastes and the truth that life is profoundly and perennially frustrating. Three ways to respond. The first is despair. You can see life's frustrations and contradictions and throw your hands up and say, this is hopeless. And this either leads to paralysis, meaning like, I'm just not gonna, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. And I've been there at points. Or just wholeheartedly pursuing whatever highs and pleasures you can. You, you just go the full, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But that only leads to, spoiler alert, from Ecclesiastes, more despair. That's one option. Second option, rage. <laughs> you can see the contradictions and frustrations in life and rage. You can just redouble your efforts. You can decide you will be the exception. You can decide that your plans will work. You can fight the economy. You can fight your body. You can fight your mentality. You can fight your relationships. You can say, listen, I'm gonna rage against the dying of the light. I'm gonna be the one. 
Spoiler alert, you won't. Everybody who's ever thought that is also dead, as you will be too. So then, what's the third option? Not despair, not rage, but trust. Trust. You can see that all of life under the sun is frustrating and maddening. Some of it is due to the fall. Some of it is due to God's design. But the only response that leads to peace is to trust him. Look at Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12, and underline this in your Bible if you've got a pen. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Spurgeon once said, the Christian trusts God where he cannot trace him. You'll see paradoxes, you'll see frustrations, you'll see the maddening meaninglessness of life at times. And you can either rage or despair or rejoice and trust. So when you trust God, three things are transformed. One, when you see that life is a vapor, it leads you to acknowledge it, but then trust God's eternal purposes. His purposes will stand forever. Your purposes will not. You may intend to wash your car today. That may not go well. You may intend to drive home today. I don't know if you'll make it. You may intend to get a new job. I don't know if that'll work out, but the Lord's purposes will stand. And so when you embrace his purposes, you can rejoice. Second, when you see that life is a mirage, turn from its false promises. Look, maybe today you're following a mirage. Maybe you think, man, if I could just get with that one girl or get with that one guy, then I would be happy. If I could just find that person, if I could experience this relationship, then I would be happy. Spoiler, no. You think, man, maybe if I could just fully express my sexual desires in the way that I want to, then I would be happy. Or maybe you think, man, if I just graduate, then I'll be happy. If I just succeed, I'll be happy. If I get that next job, I'll be happy. If we could move into that house, I know we would be happy and we would stop having marriage conflict if we could just get that house. Spoiler, you'll still be, you'll still be in conflict. Maybe if I just got that car, I'd be, nope. I was kind of thinking if we went on vacation, to, nope. Still won't be happy. They are mirages. The teacher deconstructs life in the best of ways so that we might then as we'll talk about next week, enjoy the daily pleasures that God gives us and make our souls satisfied in him. Third, when you see life as a paradox, stop beating your head against the wall. Stop being afraid to acknowledge it. Are you demanding that you be the one to see how the scales of justice fully balance in eternity? You will not be able to understand everything God has done. The response is then to fear the Lord. And here's the reality. When you fear the Lord, you will be happier and more whole than you ever could without him. One last thing. I'm just going to give this to you. I know I'm slightly over, but, but I think this is so helpful. And I think it reinforces the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. I love when uh, just the world science states obvious truths after much study that are found in the Bible from like four to 5,000 years ago. So recent NBC study by uh, an NBC News article by a study done by Dr. Steller from the University of Toronto says this. It talks about the role of awe being necessary for human happiness. This is a real study. Quote, awe makes us feel small or feel a sense of self-diminishment in science speak. 
and that's good for us, Dr. Steller explains. We spend a lot of our time thinking about what's going on in our world and what's affecting us directly, but awe changes that, making us see ourselves as a small piece of something larger. Feeling small makes us feel humble, thereby lessening selfish tendencies like entitlement and arrogance and narcissism. And feeling small and humbled makes us want to engage with others and feel more connected to others, Gordon adds. The researchers then go on to describe that people experiencing awe are happier, more humble, more honest about themselves, and healthier. As I'm like, what is this awe they're talking about? What is it? They describe awe as the emotion we experience in response to something vast that defies our existing frame of reference. Look, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, guys, and just say, it feels almost as though humans are designed to live in awe of something far greater than themselves. And, and I love that researchers are like, wow, we, this is the, the amazing thing we just discovered. We just discovered you're supposed to feel small and you'll be happier. Ironically, we had no idea. And Ecclesiastes is like, I, I did. He's the guy in the back of the party, remember, who's like in black. He's like, I already knew that. I could have told you that, right? That, and brothers and sisters, I, I think then, if we embrace that, if we're willing to today say God is God and we are not, we're willing to feel small and trust the God that is eternal, who works out the paradoxes, who holds things of eternal value, we will fear the Lord and rejoice. Would you stand? And I want to end by singing. And I want us to have a moment as we sing here. Uh, we're going to sing a song that we've sung before about, about beholding our God. But, but there are times at which I think God's word calls us to do something, to adjust something in our hearts. And so here's, here's kind of what I would encourage you to, to do as we are about to end with singing. I'd encourage you to, to ask the Lord, Lord, where am I frustrated in life right now? And maybe because it's a fallen world, and you have to trust God to resolve it. It may be because it's just the daily frustrations of life that God has given you as a gift so that you'll turn to trust him. But ask, where are you frustrated right now? And the solution to that, I think we so often think is, well, I will resolve this frustration. I will get through this. I will come up with blank. But in reality, Ecclesiastes calls us to say, no, the solution is being willing to be small and fearing the Lord. So as we sing, I just want to encourage you to take that frustration and release it to the Lord today. And be willing to let God be God. Acknowledge, fear, and rejoice. Let's sing.